Good morning, church. If you can please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. My name is Tony LaRose, and today's scripture reading will come from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming forward toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have just a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they had wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, you spread your word out before us as a meal. Uh, You've told us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every breath, every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is sweeter than honey. But Father, we acknowledge that sometimes we need to be awoken to our spiritual hunger. So we pray that this morning you would awaken us to that and feed us from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if this, when, uh, this, the weather this week made you long for summer. Uh, it did me, uh, because summer means baseball. And we don't have our summer plans together yet as a family. We're trying to figure out who's where and when and what and all that stuff. But one of the things we hope to do is go to a baseball game together as a family. We actually have done very few games together uh, in the whatever many years, last 20 years, but we hope to this summer. If you were to ask us after the game that we're going to go to, to give you an account of the game, we would all give you slightly different versions of the game. I mean, you'd get the gist of what happened from all of us, you know, the general flow of the game. We'd be able to, each one of us, tell you who won. But my commentary would most certainly include a tirade against the pitch clock, (laughs) 
Jake would give you insights onto the pitchers and their stuff, and if it was working that week, that day or not. Luke would tell you about the flow of the game, but he'd also tell you what the uniforms were like, and if they were wearing those cool select uh, city connect uniforms, or Caleb would tell you about their salaries, uh, and how the players union was working. Lynn would tell you about the crowd around us, where they were born, you know, what their kids were doing, kind of thing. Uh, we'd, but you'd get the gist of the game, and we'd, you'd have a full picture if you talked to all five of us. Now, if there was something really extraordinary that happened in the middle of the game, say an unassisted triple play in the fifth inning, I'm pretty sure we would all tell you about that. An unassisted triple play is like a unicorn in baseball. It's happened 15 times ever. So if it happened at the game we were at, I'm sure we would all tell you about that. That little story is a little bit of an insight into the Gospels. The gospel writers are all giving you accounts of Jesus' life. They all give you the same general flow of what happened from birth to death to resurrection. They tell you who won, and it's Jesus, and it's a great come-from-behind kind of victory. I mean, right? You think he's counted out when he's in the grave, but he rises again victorious. But they each add different details, Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount, John has the Upper Room Discourse and the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, They each have different miracle stories. As a matter of fact, the story that was just read by Tony, John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Why? Why would they consider that so significant, like an unassisted triple play in the fifth inning? Why would they consider that so significant that they would all feel compelled to record it and comment on it? Well, the story is... It's not the most impressive miracle Jesus has done either, is it? I mean, raising of a dead man stands out as a little bit more significant. So why this story? Well, John tells us that this story happened in the region of Galilee, which is removed from the kind of the politics of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where the temple was, where the seats of power were. That was about theological debate and power struggles. Galilee was a simple, remote area. It was peasant People there were concerned about daily living and where they were going to eat and their farms and things like that. John also tells us that the story happens as Passover is approaching. Passover was one of the high feasts in Israel's religious life where the people would come together and gather and remember what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt. And how Moses had led them across the Red Sea and provided for them manna in the wilderness to meet their hunger needs. So Jesus is in Galilee, and he's been teaching and healing. And now it's getting to be evening, and the crowd is still there, and he asks Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed this crowd? 
The crowd was 5,000 men, not including women and children, so probably a crowd of 10 to 15 to 20,000 people standing there. Philip responds, not even 200 denarii would be enough to buy bread for just people to have a bite to eat. 200 denarii, a denarius was one day's wage. So this amounts to basically eight months of working man's wages wouldn't be enough to cover the cost of the food. Andrew's a little bit more optimistic. And he says, well, this boy here has five loaves of barley bread. Barley bread was the food of the poor. And two fishes. What are you going to do with those, Jesus? I love that kind of optimism, that almost playfulness, like, let's see what happens here. Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fishes, and something I've wondered about is, the boy, did the boy offer them, or did Andrew just take them? Uh, we're left with a little bit of a question there. Um, but Jesus instructs people to have a seat. He gives thanks for these barley loaves and fishes, and then he begins to divide them out. And it says that the people ate until they were satisfied. They were full. They didn't just have a little bit. They had enough and more than enough because there was 12 basketfuls left over. Jesus met the need and went over and above meeting the need. The people are so amazed at this that they said, truly, this must be the prophet who is to come. See, Jesus, in performing this miracle, he's stepping into a prophetic tradition that goes back to Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha has a a similar miracle where he feeds a hundred hungry men with a few loaves of bread, barley bread. But even going back beyond that, he's stepping into the stream of prophetic tradition going back to Moses. Moses had provided manna from heaven to feed the people of Israel while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. But Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18 that there is one coming after me, a greater prophet. Listen to him. So when the, prof- when the people say, this must be the prophet who is to come, they're hearkening back to that and saying, this is the one that is greater than Moses. Let's make him king. And so they gather to force Jesus into kingship. But Jesus withdraws and goes up on a mountain to be away from the people. So what is it about this story that is so compelling that all four gospel writers include it? Certainly you see Jesus' power. Absolutely. You see him stepping into the stream of the prophets, yes. You see the connection to him and Moses, absolutely. But here, you see the compassion of Jesus as well. The compassion of Jesus that extends to the whole individual, body and soul, stomach and spirit, And I think that's the main point of why this is included in all four Gospels. And we want to think about that together for the remainder of this sermon. Uh, I'm going to borrow a word from jazz. We're going to vamp on that theme. 
I don't know music. I just heard the cool kids saying it. Uh, did I use it right? All right. We're going to stay and just kind of think on that theme. The story is a great demonstration of Jesus' compassion for the whole person. We see this not just in John's gospel, but how all four of the gospel accounts complement one another. Matthew 14 records the same miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew says that Jesus had compassion on the crowds, so he healed their diseases. He was concerned for their physical well-being, and he spent the day healing the sick. And after he had spent the day healing the sick, night fell and he fed them. Mark's focus is slightly different. Mark, recording the same miracle, says that Jesus had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them. Focus more on the spiritual needs. They, they were spiritually lost and they had no shepherd to guide them, so he taught them. Luke combines both in Luke chapter 9. He had compassion on them, so he spoke to them regarding the kingdom of God and he cured those who had diseases. Now John doesn't use the word compassion, but it's clear that it's Jesus' compassion for the crowds and their hunger that leads him to this miracle. Jesus' compassion has throughout his ministry led him to meet people's physical needs. Whether it's healing from disease or the casting out of demons that have been tormenting or raising a dead child or brother. Jesus shows compassion for people's physical, material, and relational needs. He sees people who are on the fringes of society that no one else sees. And he meets those relational needs. He says, I see you to the leper, to the women who are scorned, to Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus meets people's real, physical, tangible, earthly needs. But Jesus' compassion doesn't stall there. He doesn't get stuck there. There's this populist movement in this story to force Jesus into kingship. Remember, it's Passover. There's all these themes about being delivered from slavery by Moses, by God's hand. Those are all swirling around in the people's thought life at the time. And they're thinking the first prophet, Moses, he did a miracle with bread. He led us to freedom. This greater prophet will do the same. But Jesus withdraws because that wasn't his purpose. If he had focused only on the material needs of Israel, this is a perfect opportunity to come and feed not just the 5,000 there, but all the poor through all the land and heal everyone's diseases and establish a just kingdom. But that would have left the spiritual need unmet. So Jesus withdraws. Uh, this miracle, as Bob has pointed out, John doesn't call them miracles. 
He calls them signs. And they're meant to point to the kingdom of God and to the one Jesus who brings the kingdom to us. They serve as authentication of his mission, that he has been sent from God the Father and that he bears the Father's seal of approval. The sign is not just to fill the people's bellies, but to point them to Jesus who will meet their spiritual need. And in compassion, Jesus offers himself as the bread of heaven to nourish the spiritually hungry. The reading for this morning ended in verse 15, but the story picks up again in verse 25 after the miracle of Jesus walking on the water across the Sea of Galilee. The next day, the crowds find him on the other side of the sea in a town called Capernaum. They ask him, Where did, how did you get here? Where did, when did you get here? And Jesus pretty much ignores that question. And he says, it's not because you saw a sign and are curious about the sign, but because your bellies were filled that you're coming seeking me. And he warns them, that barley bread, that'll eventually spoil. That barley bread that filled your bellies will leave you hungry later today. Instead, he tells them, work for the eternal bread, the bread that brings life. And they ask, well, how, what is the work of God that will bring this eternal life to us? And he says, it's to believe in me. At that, they, they recoil a little bit, and they're like, why? Why should we believe in you? Moses fed a million people for 40 years with manna. What sign will you do so that we would believe in you? And Jesus says, basically, whoa, whoa, let's get this straight. Moses didn't feed anybody. God did. God sent the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. Now he has sent me. I am the true bread of heaven that brings life. And anyone who comes to me, Jesus says, will never be hungry. Jesus is pointing to a hunger that barley bread can't meet. Only Jesus. Let me summarize this part of the sermon in one sentence so far. Jesus did not neglect the material needs of people, but he didn't get stuck there either. This is something that the church and individual disciples have often struggled with. It is really easy to get focused on one type of need and neglect the other. When we do that, it leads to sickly forms of Christianity. Either super spiritual Christianity that focuses only on spiritual needs to the detriment of the physical or a materialistic kind of Christianity that sees only the material, the stuff that's at hand. Well, how do we know if we've fallen into one of those sickly forms of Christianity? 
Think with me first about super-spiritual Christianity, the form of Christianity that focuses solely on spiritual needs and neglects the material. How do you know if you've fallen into that? Uh, Fleming Rutledge, in her book, Crucifixion, tells a story of uh, a Catholic priest in the Philippines. This woman kept coming to this Catholic priest. She owned a plantation. She was wealthy. And she kept coming, worried to the point of tears that she was missing communion on occasion. The priest was moved by that. But... He said this woman was not moved, not worried, not concerned that daily children were dying on her plantation due to the unsafe work conditions. Concern for the spiritual, not for the material. That kind of sickness can be shown or can show up in many different permutations in our lives. How do we diagnose it? Well, here's a symptom. Symptom one. You view mercy ministries as a distraction for the church. Uh, There is a temptation to disobediently neglect the call to show mercy and to baptize that neglect with theological jargon. We are skilled at justifying our sins of omission with theology. Mercy ministries aren't just ancillary to the church. They're essential to being what Christ has called us to be, to emulating Christ in the world. Symptom two, you view mercy ministries simply as a door to evangelism. You think to yourself, well, if we feed them, we'll have a captive audience. If we give them clothing, then maybe they'll come to our church on Sunday morning. If we're active in the community, it'll boost our image. Jesus' motives were not pragmatic. It wasn't, if I do this, the crowds will love me. It was, I love the crowds. He was motivated not out of pragmatism, but out of love and compassion. Our work to meet the needs of people is not a distraction or merely an opportunity for evangelism. It is an expression of Christ's heart in us. You ready for more? Symptom three. You view people's daily lives and responsibilities, or maybe your own daily life and responsibility, as getting in the way of kingdom work. I've seen this among fellow pastors, sometimes in myself, ministry leaders, campus leaders. You see it in pastors who over-program and expect people to be at everything because that's where kingdom work is happening. And they get mad when the man misses the men's breakfast because he's at his son's soccer game. Or people are so busy with work they can't come to prayer meeting. 
I see it in campus ministries who guilt students for missing events because they're studying. Or people who get fired from their job because they're not doing their job. They're just using it as a place to have spiritual conversations with people. Neglecting the real material need that they have. These are all examples of focusing on spiritual needs and neglecting the material. And it misses Jesus' heart. A year and a half, two years ago, I had new avenues of ministry here at the church open up um, because John Mangrum left. This is not like, I'm glad John left. I miss John. But I got to step into deacon's ministry for the first time here at the church. Step into the outreach committee and the work that they're doing. And it is so exciting to see how well our church meets people's real, physical, material needs in the church and in the community. And it was so good for me because I can get lopsided. I like to read theology. I really do. I like to teach it. And it can become divorced from people's material needs and my own. But to have the heart of Christ means we pay attention to the material as well as the spiritual. But there's that other version of sick. And you guys, I just got it. I have no timer up there. So I have no idea. None. All right. There is the second version of sickly Christianity. It's materialistic Christianity. A form where people get stuck in looking at only the material to the neglect of the spiritual. Uh, My wife and I lived in Pennsylvania for five years before we moved here, and we bought our first house there. Uh, We made it our own. We loved it. Uh, We fixed it up. But it was an old house built in 1925. We really enjoyed the house. It was a great first house. But we hated the lack of closets. Uh, The bedroom had a closet that was that big. Not enough for my clothes, certainly not enough for Lynn's clothes, and definitely not enough for both of ours. So mine were down in the guest room. And hers were down in the guest room. (laughs) Spread. Now we are in a bigger house where every room has its own big closet and storage rooms and storage cubbies under the stairs and they're full. My guess is you don't have an empty closet in your house either. Material things spread. Material concerns take up as much space as you allow them. For every victim of super spiritual Christianity I've met, I've probably met 500 who fall into the material crowd, the materialistic Christianity. How do you know if you've fallen into that? Symptom one, you focus only on material resources at hand. That's what happened to Philip. 
He saw the need. 5,000 men, 10,000, 15,000 people. We don't have enough money, Jesus, to meet this need. He was overwhelmed by the material need in front of him and the lack of resources that he had. But he forgot Jesus. Jesus could do a lot with five barley loaves and two fishes. Jesus didn't even need the five barley loaves and the two fishes. There was a hillside of rocks. Jesus can do a lot with a little. He can do something with nothing. But we can get stuck looking at our own resources, the size of our budget, the size of our group, and forget Jesus. We can look at the spiritual needs of the world and think, how can we, a church in Bloomington, Indiana, do anything to meet the spiritual needs of the world? They're so great. We have limited resources, and we forget Jesus. You can look at the campus and the the darkness on the campus and think, how can I shine a light that will pierce that darkness? How can my small group of students do anything to make a dent here? And you're forgetting Jesus. Before the, the message this morning, Joyce Van Ness pulled me aside and she said, I was reading these passages and the phrase that stood out to me, that she's in Matthew's account of this story, is we have only. That's so encouraging. We have only so much money. We have only so much strength. We have only five loaves and two fishes. But... Jesus. Symptom two, you focus only on material needs. There are lots of churches who run food banks and shelters, but sadly offer no gospel. There is the possibility that mercy ministries, as much as I love them, could seduce us away from the harder work of ministry, preaching the gospel. Why would I call that the harder work of ministry? It's really hard to gauge how well the gospel is landing in a community. It's really hard to gauge spiritual growth. You can count how many sandwiches have been given out, how many coats have been handed out, how many people you've sheltered, and the newspaper might show up and take pictures when you're doing that kind of work. And you might win the praise of men for that kind of work. I'm not saying that kind of work is bad or unimportant, but it's in a way easier. We have to remember that there is a hunger in the human heart that barley bread can't touch. The church is not doing the world any favors when we leave people without the bread of life. Third and final symptom. You've fallen into materialistic kind of Christianity when our spiritual lives are overly focused on earthly material blessings. You've probably heard the phrase before, rice Christians. It's a derogatory slur 
aimed at those who would convert to Christianity, usually in impoverished areas, convert to Christianity, accept baptism so that they could get a bag of rice. Similar phrase came out of Ireland in the famines of the 1830s. Supers. Protestant missionaries would offer soup to people if they would stay and hear a message. We're all tempted to be rice Christians or supers now. The prosperity gospel has changed American Christianity. Uh, We're pretty good, I think, at sniffing out crass forms of prosperity gospel stuff. Crap. When people talk talking about the gospel is going to make you rich or guarantee your health, we're pretty good at sniffing that out, but there are subtler versions of it that we are consuming. Call it the emotional prosperity gospel. We've been trained to think in terms of our felt needs and the church and Jesus will meet your felt needs. Are you having problems in your marriage? Jesus will fix them. Uh, Do you want to be happy? Jesus will do it. It's a version of rice Christianity. Uh, When we desire every sermon, every message, every discussion of the Bible to be immediately applicable to our life, We're falling into a subtle version of that phenomenon. Think about it. Does that work in your marriage? Would you sit down with your wife or your husband, allow them to pour out their hearts to you, their dreams, their fears, their anxieties, their loves, and then say to them, okay, now how do I use that in my life? I am not diminishing the importance of application. We ought to think, how do I honor Jesus in my marriage, in my work, in my daily living? But it's a subtle slide from that into how will Jesus fix my marriage, work, etc. We've gotten to the point where we want Jesus to be useful. And he demands to be loved and worshipped. Jesus does not ignore the material, physical, social, relational needs of people. But he doesn't get stuck there. And he doesn't want us to get stuck there. As if barley bread were eternal. I am fearful that I, or we, are not hungry for the spiritual nourishment that Jesus offers. He stands and he says, come, come partake of me. And we say, oh, Jesus, thank you so much. But my belly's full of barley bread. 
My closets are busting at the seams. My calendar doesn't have any space. I pray that this story kind of awakens us to the the full depth of Jesus' compassion. He cares about you and your material needs, but even more, your spiritual needs. I pray that he would make us hungry so that he could come and fill us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you have not just left us with needs. You've determined as your people that you will meet our needs. Father, we pray that you would awaken us to the deep spiritual need that we have and that we would turn to you and feast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.